This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin air as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive at Afternoon Briefing on the ABC News Channel, joining you from Wurundjeri country. And I'm Frank Kelly from RN Breakfast, joining you for another week from my lounge room in lockdown on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And soon we're going to be joined by the ABC 730's Chief Political Correspondent, Laura Tingle, to talk about well, vaccine rollouts, also the treatment of women in politics, um, because Laura spoke with former Liberal MP Julia Banks this week. She's revealed in a memoir that an unnamed cabinet minister made an unwanted sexual advance towards her when she was in the parliament. First, though, PK, it's NAIDOC week, and in celebration of that, we've seen some changes on the media landscape, at least, on Channel 10. We've had the weather forecast for, for cities in Australia using Aboriginal place names on the ABC, 7.30 and some other programs have announced they're going to start using traditional Indigenous names when they introduce places as well. Australia Post is um, having some changes to its, its letters and its parcels so you can acknowledge the Indigenous place names. And so from this week onwards, we're going to acknowledge country in every Party Room episode. And the next question, I guess, PK, is why? What's the point of it? And is it anything more, all of this, anything more than tokenistic? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this, Fran, for a long time, actually. And I think it's really important to acknowledge where we're talking to you from. I want to acknowledge the Rudgery people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land where I'm recording this podcast from, and to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I reckon this is important because the way we frame our conversations is Eurocentric. And this place may be called Melbourne now, but this land has been occupied by a rich culture of people who've been here for 60,000 years and are still here despite an often brutal colonisation process. So we have a rich history and yet it's taken this long to even acknowledge very simple things like what this place was called, who these people are and were, how this land is used, how it should be used, how it was used. I think it's really important to reflect on that history and on the contemporary experience as well. I don't think this is a new country. I don't broadcast from a new city. It's now got a British name, but I think it's important to reflect on where you are and what the land is. And I think that's just an important way of thinking about things differently. And I hope that people can reflect also where they're listening to us from, right? Because I come from a particular spot, but of course, there are so many nations across the country. Mm. And I think that, that that's really important to reflect on. And even that point, it helps us understand uh, how the society, the first Australian society was organised. You know, there's not just a few of them. There were many, many, many different nations. And the more we know and understand of who was here before us, how they lived, the more we understand and know of the history of what happened 250 years ago, because we don't even really know the difficult and ugly truth of that and the pain and change inflicted on the first Australians. We can't understand why and how it still resonates today for many in ways that we too often reduce to statistics like closing the gap and to stereotypes. And, you know, reconciliation can only be based on a better understanding. That's, yeah. I think, the truth of it. PK, in this NAIDOC week, of course, COVID rolls on. 
New South Wales has extended the lockdown because of the Sydney outbreak, which is now spreading across Sydney. It seems the stay-at-home message from the Premier hasn't been taken up as much as it needs to. As we record this on a Thursday, the Premier's already warned us to brace ourselves for another surge in COVID cases over the next few days. So lockdown at least until Friday the 16th, because as Gladys Berejiklian, the most reluctant of the Premiers to lockdown, says she wants this to be the last lockdown in New South Wales. We don't want to be in a situation where we are constantly having to move between lockdown, no lockdown, lockdown, no lockdown. We appreciate and understand the stress this means for individuals, for families and, of course, for businesses. But what would be far worse is being a situation where you have to live in and out of lockdown until that period of time when we have the vaccine available to us. That is not a way to live. And PK, the key to no more lockdowns is, of course, more vaccine availability. Pfizer vaccine really is what we're short of. We won't get those Pfizer and, and Moderna vaccines in any significant numbers until September, October this year at the earliest. So, you know, what, do we stay in lockdown until then? That's the dilemma, of course. And of course we won't, but that's why people need to go harder on locking down to get the infection rates down. There's been some criticism of the New South Wales lockdown, PK, for being too little too late. I know you look on from Melbourne and you and others sort of perhaps of the school of it being lockdown light. But the New South Wales Health Minister Brad Hazard was having none of it. He's laying the blame for this outbreak firmly at the feet of those responsible for the vaccine rollout. Uh, certainly the lack of certainty supply going forward is causing us massive concern. I think it's safe to say that if we had had the supply that uh, we wanted, uh, we wouldn't now be in this situation. So there you have it. Brad Hazard essentially blaming the federal government. The federal government's called in the armed forces, PK. We have a lieutenant general in charge of the rollout now, and he's been very busy over the past week. Yeah, funny that. Yes, that's right. Uh, lieutenant General Fruin has actually acknowledged the government's mishaps. But him being the spokesperson for the vaccine rollout... I see it as uh, kind of, you know, we've talked about previously in the podcast, the militarisation, you know, you get the army involved and, and they'll fix it. But ultimately, these have been political questions in terms of the government's management of this. Now, is Lieutenant Fruin accountable for this? No. He's doing the clean-up, right? <laughs> He's trying yeah. to fix it. It's the government uh, who made some decisions, put their eggs in the AstraZeneca basket. Yes, then that went wrong. Hadn't really thought about the other contingencies enough, clearly, and then couldn't get it back on the rails as much as it promised after a reset. So I, I just think it's kind of passing the buck, to be honest. I think ultimately it is the federal government's responsibility, the vaccine rollout. New South Wales has been more polite about its language, but as we played that great it makes it quite clear that they do hold the federal government responsible, but probably with a bit less of the politics than you're hearing from Queensland. Uh, you know, Anastasia Palaget has been heaping it on, the New South Wales government being a little more diplomatic, but now they're in a conundrum, and well, you're in the actual lockdown conundrum. I'm in the conundrum. <laughs> It's been extended by a week. It's not looking good, though, right? I mean, if the cat is out of the bag, as uh, Raina McIntyre, the epidemiologist, has said, she thinks it's all over Sydney now, is the fault of the way that the lockdown was constructed? Uh, yes, there has been critique that, you know, I just spoke to a friend in Sydney who said he went to Newtown and everything was open and he's never seen it so busy. And I said, oh, no, our stage four lockdown, it was, you know, death on the streets. Very different kind of looking lockdown. Now, 
I think lockdowns have become really, really uh, weaponized, politicized. You know, whose side are you on? What kind of lockdown are you into? Let's just look at what works. If it's a highly transmittable virus strain that is fleeting, as the New South Wales government has even told us, Victoria said it when we did our two-week lockdown a couple of weeks ago, now New South Wales says it's fleeting, then obviously if you're walking around shopping and fleetingly being near people, you're going to fleetingly get the virus. Like, that's how it works, right? So this is going to become an increasingly big problem for the New South Wales government. Do they keep locking down? They don't want to. We know, as has been revealed by the Australian newspaper, that there is a split inside the New South Wales government. We know that Dominic Perrottet, the New South Wales Treasurer, stood stood up in, in the Cabinet process and didn't want the extension of the lockdown. We heard some words from Brad Hazard saying, you know, if they can't get it under control, you're going to have to live with it. Well, what does that look like? Uh, I think there's going to be a huge brawl if it's bubbling too strongly and you try try and move out of lockdown. But then equally, an extended lockdown will send people mad in the second year and obviously business will struggle. Fran, it's a really big problem and it becomes an issue of the political management, who's to blame, and the New South Wales government, they're going to want to say, hang on a minute, it's not us, it's the vaccine rollout. And of course, both things are true to some extent. Of course, if we had more vaccine and more people vaccinated, we would not be in this situation. But I do think there is fair criticism or concern about the lockdown light, if you like, because you're right, there's lots of shops open and it's all meant to be essential. But who's deciding what's essential? The messages aren't sharp enough, I don't think. And that's evidenced by the fact that we now have several regions in the south southwest suburbs, which seem to be the hotspot now. And the mobility data is showing that people in those suburbs are still moving around a lot. The testing ratios in those suburbs are much, much lower than they were in the eastern suburbs when the Bondi outbreak first popped up. So clearly the messages from the Premier and and the other ministers aren't clear enough and hard enough for everybody. So some people seem to think, oh, well, that's not directed at me. I'm not in those hotspots. Well, the point is it moves and the more people move around, which they are, in those areas now. They're not staying at home. The Premier was essentially begging yesterday for people to stay inside, stay home. And that doesn't mean going over to your family's place to look after your grandkid. That doesn't mean going to visit your mum. Stay home means stay home. But their messaging to this point, I think, has been a little bit fuzzy and a little bit soft. And clearly, they're really worried about where it's got us to now. Fran, on that note, should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. Laura Tingle is ABC 730's Chief Political Correspondent and our guest. Welcome to the party room. Well, thank you. That sort of introduction music always makes me think I should have a pineapple daiquiri in front of me and it's... The wrong hour of the day. And for that. you deserve one. <laughs> you deserve that. Um, oh, Laura, is. you deserve it particularly because you did a spectacular interview on 7.30 this week with former Liberal MP Julia Banks. Just to remind people, she's a former Liberal MP who quit the party towards the end of her first term in disgust, really, at the goings-on in the leadership coup where Malcolm Turnbull was thrown out. And at the time, she got up in the parliament and she talked of sexist behaviour and bullying around that. Now she's doubled down in a memoir and she's publicly detailed an incident in the Prime Minister's suite where she says she was inappropriately touched by a Cabinet Minister in a room packed with other MPs. She hasn't named that Minister. And and she was also very critical in the book uh, of the new Prime Minister Scott Morrison's handling of her, her announcement to leave the Parliament. Here she is. I left because of that three months of... Um treatment where I realised Morrison, 
the most powerful man in the country. Well, he was, I, I describe him as like a menacing, controlling wallpaper. A menacing, controlling wallpaper. That's a Holy pretty tough... Holy That's a pretty tough narrative for the Prime Minister to control, isn't it, Laura? <laughs> well, I rather liked David Rowe's uh, take on it in the Financial Review where he had all this wallpaper with COVID viruses all over it, but none of it was rolled out properly. So <laughs> uh, just uh, taking up the COVID rollout theme. But I actually thought that uh, her comments both in the book and in the interview about Scott Morrison and rather surprisingly to me about Josh Frydenberg was the really potent thing. I mean, I know the story about being groped by a cabinet minister in the PM's office, you know, has that shock value and all that sort of stuff. But I just think the picture she paints of the Prime Minister was really quite damning and a really interesting insight into the way our politics works. You know, the fact that I, th I think she said that she'd only ever actually met or spoken to Scott Morrison maybe three or four times in her life. So yeah, all of this... it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. When you're a member of the team, yeah. and not to mention the vote, the single person... The vote. Yeah, the vote, really. Yeah. The, the one vote they picked up in 2016, you know, and this... Uh, and, of course, we didn't have time in the interview to really get into the rest of her story about how, from early 2018 onwards, having been the one vote to actually win a seat, factional power brokers, as they always are politely yeah. described, uh, in Victoria were actively undermining her, stacking branches in order to get another candidate in and uh, just the most appalling experience you could possibly imagine mm. for somebody who'd been such a star uh, attraction at the 2016 election. And a significant woman in a career prior to politics as a corporate lawyer. So, you know, she was oh, no absolutely. shrinking violet, this person. No, no, she, she was not a shrinking violet at all. And, uh, and the, the story she tells about how right from the time she was going through the pre-selection process, that she was still in 2016 getting questions, 2015, 2016 getting questions like, so who's going to look after your kids? And she'd say, oh, well, you know, they're, they're sort of in their late teens now, so they're fine. And they'd say, well, how old are you? And, and she... <laughs> She essentially says that she fa not just faced sexism, but also uh, ageism mm. and 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 racism, uh, if you like, because of her Greek heritage uh, throughout her short parliamentary career, um, and that the worst of it was coming from her own side. It's it's really really damning. Yeah, it certainly is, and I think. If you combine it with the ongoing, you know, simmering narrative of the year, you know, obviously coronavirus over overshadows everything, mm. but the woman question, mm. <laughs> um, this is an issue for Scott Morrison in that context. I mean, I spoke to Tim Wilson on the show the other day and I put to him, do you believe Julia Banks? And he said, yes, I do. Mm. Um, and I think that's telling too, right? Like she cannot, you cannot just dismiss it and say, oh, you know, um, and sort of manage the public relations here. She was, as we say, a very distinguished woman elected to the parliament who is calling out some pretty appalling behaviour and they have to deal with it. Well, they do. And I think uh, the, the really powerful part of the interview the other night was that she linked it up really well. Uh, when I when I say you know the powerful part of her uh, sort of critique of the prime minister was was uh, you know not just about what he was doing behind the scenes, but about the fact that there's this model that he's got uh, you know that of uh, Christine Holgate, Brittany Higgins. Um, we unfortunately and rather tragically had audio problems on the grab uh, of him talking because she says you know when I said I was leaving, he 
went out and did this press conference, which, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, sort of sounds very like the um, I've spoken to Jen thing about Brittany Higgins, where he's going, my only concern is, you know, Julia's welfare and, you know, that she's she's okay and, you know, this imp- implication that she'd had some sort of breakdown or something. And she was just watching mm. it agog saying, what's this about? This is just bizarre. And so she was essentially saying that, you know, there's this, there is this uh, process and uh, this strategy by the PM to, uh, to sort of tr- treat women like this, to make them sound, you know, crazy or whatever. Uh, and that, you know, and that this is the problem, uh, that it, it's basically regarded as a political problem to be dealt with uh, using whatever means necessary. Yeah, I was speaking to her. I'm sure you, you, you all were speaking to Julia Banks a lot through this time. She was not crazy. She was not vulnerable and fragile in particular. She was mm. angry and annoyed and determined. And that's why she kept standing up in the parliament at all hours of the day and night and saying things that her colleagues were furious at her for saying. So let's just deal with that. But as she said in your interview, Laura, she's not fearless. And that's mm. the reason she gives for not naming the cabinet mm. minister in that in that event that she describes. Mm. Um, and some have been critical of her for that. Mm. But, okay, she's not named them, but I spoke with the NDIS Minister, Linda Reynolds, this week, who is on the Prime Minister's Women's Cabinet Task Force, which was Mm. formed to sort of deal with all the issues around better conditions, um, protections for women who Mm. have have problems with sexual harassment or, or worse. And I couldn't get Linda Reynolds to say that this alleged incident should be followed up, should be investigated any further, really. But surely, mm. if it's a claim against a cabinet minister, the prime minister and others will want to know who it is. If they don't know already, they want to know. And if Julia Banks isn't saying it publicly because, as she says, she's not fearless, maybe she'd say it to them privately. But are they asking? Is there any sign of that? Do we know? Yeah. Well, I think it says quite a lot uh, that we did uh, the interview on Thursday last week with Julia Banks, partly because we wanted to make sure that, that anybody she did talk about had a right of reply. So we put in uh, questions about what she'd specifically said to uh, Scott Morrison, to Josh Frydenberg and to Linda Reynolds, because we did dis- uh, she, she did discuss uh, the, the fact that Linda Reynolds had got up at the time and called out bad behaviour, but subsequently said, you know, mm. this is something to be dealt with internally. Uh, now we had to cut back that bit of the interview just because of time. But neither the Prime Minister or the Treasurer actually responded to our requests, responded to our questions. We ended up relying on some lines that had been put out on Saturday in response to a Good Weekend article. And Josh Frydenberg's office just didn't come back at all. Now, I think that's as damning as anything else. There's been criticism at the margins about the fact that, you know, we were running uncontested allegations. Well, you know, we we asked the we'll various people. Them. Yeah, we asked. <laughs> we asked them. That was we the asked test. Pe- we asked people for their responses and, you know, crickets. So uh, I, I, I think that's extraordinary. But, you know, the lack of curiosity... Uh, about any of this stuff, you know, which we saw in the earlier allegations made about Christian Porter from the Prime Minister and uh, about this incident as well, you know, and the various lines that have been used at various times about human frailty or empathy training or Mm. whatever is pretty pathetic. Yeah, I think so. Look, another issue we want to touch on with you, Laura, is obviously the, the vaccine rollout, vaccine supplies. 
Sydney's lockdown has definitely brought it into the spotlight. The New South Wales Health Minister, as we were discussing before, Fran and I, Brad Hazard, has has been talking, of course, a lot this week. He's likened the bid to secure vaccines to the Hunger Games because there's growing international competition for vaccine supplies. Mm. And just this week, South Korea received, I think it was about 700,000 soon-to-be-expiring Pfizer jabs from Israel. But many Australians were left wondering, why didn't we get our hands on some of this stock sooner, uh, given we have to wait and wait and wait, Mm. and we are in winter waiting and our biggest state in lockdown. So why is Australia losing the competition? And and what's going on behind the scenes to try and get more of, of the supply, given the government is really in, in a lot of, I think, significant hot water on the fact that this is going so slowly? Look, I think uh, there's all sorts of grief going on behind scenes and name-calling and uh, blaming and all those sorts of things. Um, look, uh, you know, to some extent, this is historical uh, calls were made partly based on the hope that there'd be this Queensland vaccine uh, which fell over. But this sort of just general sense of there's no hurry, uh, I think, is the most damning part about it all. You, you, you don't really get any sense that there's been any urgency attached to this. If there is, they're doing a really good job of hiding it. Uh, and um, And, of course, we're not seeing any uh, transparency on this. I mean, our main vehicle for transparency is uh, the Senate COVID committee. They've had very little success uh, establishing what happened. You know, there was this sort of story that went round that basically we told um, Pfizer to, well, bugger off, (laughs) to use the colloquial expression last year. That's emphatically denied. But it certainly doesn't feel like we ever sort of said, we will take one of everything, thanks, at the time. What can you do about it now? And I think there's not a lot you can do about it. But I don't think it's really because so many people, one, were sort of going, well, we don't have a problem, so why do we have to get the vaccine now anyway? And then we had the AstraZeneca thing. Suddenly it's come into sharp focus. I mean, the fact that most people under 40 will not actually be able to get vaccinated until uh, September or I think at least October, uh, is going to start really focusing, uh, it's going to be in more front of of people's minds because of the Sydney lockdown and its ramifications in an economic and life uncertainty sense, let alone the health sense. Um, Mm. So so all of those equations are going to change in people's heads. Um, And and what the states are saying is not just, I mean, you you can't get any clear information about this from anybody. I'm sorry that I, I, I haven't been able to find it. But on the one hand, you've got the federal minister saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to, the supply is going to ramp up by double in the next two weeks. And the states are saying, well, look, sorry, the figures we're being given, we're actually going to be getting less each week than we have been. And we're actually going to run out, is what Queensland's saying, of Pfizer. So it, it's, you know, the sort of uncertainty about supply and the fact um, we had... Um, we had uh, Emma McBride, an immunologist from uh, from uh, Townsville, on a, c- a couple of nights ago on seven thirty, and she was essentially. I said to her, "Well, is this why the PM suddenly was encouraging everybody to get AstraZeneca because we, we don't have enough Pfizer?" And she said, "Well, yeah, um, we, we're not going to be able to really yeah. have a proper rollout unless a lot of people decide. Well, I'm not going to wait 
until uh, the Pfizer comes because maybe it won't turn up. And some people have decided not to wait in the sort of in the flurry of the of the Sydney lockdown. And yes, clearly the government didn't say I'll have one of each last year, and that's because they thought, you know, they had it all managed with AstraZeneca being homegrown, looked like a good plan. Um, but turns out there wasn't enough insurance. The question, and I think you sort of touched on it there, though, we've got this projection of twenty million Pfizer doses, and then another forty million or whatever the numbers are sort of jumble up in my head, they get so chopped up and around, of Moderna coming later. Um, but they're not coming till, you know, the last quarter of the year, October, November, December. And then is there any guarantee? Because the health minister says he's working on increasing our supplies, but Lieutenant General Fruin says he won't tie himself to specific dates at this stage for when we will access greater vaccine stocks. So I wonder if it is a firm contractual agreement or if you know, we could get bumped again for some of it if it's judged that other countries are in greater need at the time. Greater need or paying more. Um, or yeah. paying more. Yeah, there, there is a bit of a sense that it's one of those times when we should possibly be sucking up to Pfizer a little bit more, to put it in <laughs> sort of colloquial terms once again. But um, look, I think there are firm contractual agreements, but there are manufacturing constraints. Um, and if you look at those, what are they called? The allocation horizon forecast mountain footpaths, whatever they are, when you actually look at the numbers on the website, they vary in terms of number of doses by tens of thousands per week. And you sort of say, well, what does that mean? And it sounds like it means we've probably got a commitment to a base number of vaccines to be delivered to us and with the possibility that there might be more. But uh, it's not very satisfactory. And of course, it's not very transparent. I mean, they won't give out any details of our uh, contract with AstraZeneca on national security grounds. These are bits of information that the public have in most other developed countries in the world. But, you know, the lack of transparency on this and also the uh, uh, thing that I think will come increasingly to focus, the, you know, the distributional problems uh, of, of this whole rollout uh, are just mind-boggling that you know this could happen in this day and age. Yeah, it's really, really frustrating. Look, changing the topic if we can, I think it's really important to just note this. Um, one actually that all three of us have been following for the past 20 years in our careers is, is the one in Afghanistan uh, where all Allied troops have been stationed. As they exit now, following the US's lead, there's a push for the Australian government to grant visas to the Afghan interpreters and, and officials who, and people who helped us, who worked with Australian and Allied troops during the war, who've been put on the Taliban's hit list. And time is of the essence as the Taliban recapture more territory across, across the country. Laura, do you think Australia owes them a duty of care? Are we doing enough heavy lifting here? Uh, no, um, we aren't. I mean, uh, and once again, I find this sort of completely mind-boggling that we, you know, I mean, they, you, you ask officials about it and they go, oh, yes, we're doing everything we can. But, uh, you know, you talk to, as you guys have talked to, some of these ex-servicemen who, who were there um, who were sort of trying to uh, intervene on, on these people's behalf and, you know, they're being asked to send emails of incredibly complicated forms in a country where, you know, the infrastructure doesn't work, people don't speak all that much English to deal with Australian bureaucratic forms. And the question is, this has been going on for years. For years, people have had these applications in. Why haven't we been doing something about it? And that's, to me, the really crucial question. The fact that 
we always knew we were going to be getting out. We've always had these people saying, look, we are going to be targets here. And there just doesn't seem to have been any real effort made over a period of several years to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Now we're not there. We're relying on other embassies to do this stuff for us. Other countries have been able to do it much more effectively. Um, and it, it, it's, I think it's a complete failure of duty of care. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a failure of duty of care and it's very, very distressing for so many of those uh, servicemen and women who worked alongside these people, depended on them. You know, DFAT says, well, they've brought home 230 um, people on visas since the Prime Minister announced that we're withdrawing, but that there are hundreds more. Hundreds. And mm. as you say, these forms are, are difficult. They're 66 pages long, I think, one of the forms. So very, very difficult to manage. And you're right, it's the same sort of criticism we're having with the, with the vaccine rollout. Why wasn't there pre-planned? done. Anyway, it's uh, it's urgent now, that's for sure. It's a life and death situation. Laura, it's always great to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. A pleasure as always. Can I say ladies? Ladies. Yes, you can always call <laughs> you can us say ladies. Ladies. <laughs> La- ladies has a really bad connotation in 2021, so I apologise in advance or retrospectively. <laughs> uh, retrospectively. See you, Laura. Bye. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Yeah. Oh, it's happening all right. The bells are ringing. It's question time. And this week's question comes from Millie, who writes, Given current public sentiments, does Scott Morrison still have election-winning potential as PM, or would the LNP have better chance with a different leader and then rebranding themselves as a change party, as we saw at the last election? Pique? I don't think that they would have a better chance with another leader. I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that there's some sort of amazing, charismatic leader-in-waiting that would, uh, you know, outperform Scott Morrison. The most obvious candidate to take over at some point is Josh Frydenberg, the Treasurer. Uh, I don't think he has any intention of moving on Scott Morrison. Um, Would he be more popular at a sort of national level? I don't know. I think he'd certainly do better in places like Victoria. But I I just don't see it that way. Now, a Guardian Essential poll saw Scott Morrison's approval rating drop six points amid the latest lockdown in the last month. And and look, there's no doubt that the shine is sort of unshining. (laughs) I think the vaccine rollout particularly is an issue. And of course, you know, over a year ago, we had the bushfire response and the I don't hold a hose. So some of these incidents have certainly hit Scott Morrison. But elections are really not just about the leader, the leader is part of the story, but not the entire story. And I think that incumbency will be incredibly relevant at the next election. And even with the vaccine rollout being um, abysmal, that the government stands a decent chance of being re-elected because I think, I'm going to be really honest here because it's how I see it, that the Labor opposition under Anthony Albanese has not really been able to strike at the government, get home runs. I haven't seen that. And I think that Scott Morrison is still the dominant political figure between him and Anthony Albanese. So I don't think there'll be a change. Uh, I don't think necessarily a change would help them anymore either. No, Um, I, I agree with you. I don't think there'll be a change. And I don't think that'll help them either, really, because I think 
there is a capacity for the vaccine rollout to, you know, really get cracking if those 20 million doses of Pfizer vaccine arrive and then we've got the Moderna. There will be plenty around and so that goes to election timing. I, I personally think the suggestion that Scott Morrison wants to go to an election or is likely to go this year is the wrong thinking now. They've got to wait, surely, for the vaccine to be rolled out comprehensively because otherwise it could be in election mode and we suddenly get another lockdown. So I think it means it will be next year and by then, presumably, uh, vaccination rates will be under control and the focus will be on what the focus so very often is in election campaign, which is people's economic situation. Uh, the economy has done you know, really well. It's surprised on the upside, as the Reserve Bank Governor has said again this week, in terms of recovery post-pandemic. So the economic story at the moment, with employment coming down, which ultimately should put pressure on wages to go up, you know, is working in the government's favour. SI then comes back to the capacity to some degree of the opposition to tell, tell a, a different story and to remind people of failures and to put forward a vision themselves that's going to be popular with the people. And so I think what's going to happen really is that the, the current public sentiment is going to have an impact on election timing, but not necessarily on election outcome. Yeah, I think that's about right. But, you know, we'll see, won't we? <laughs> we might be eating our words. We'll see. Um, <laughs> when do you think the election will be, PK? Oh, I reckon next year. I can't. I know that um, there's some people who think Scott Morrison will go this year. Oh, I just, I can't see it. I just don't think the, the vaccine rollout will be kind of at the level it should be by then. And, and I think if they can get most people vaccinated and go to an election next year, that, that, that would be a better look for him. That's how I see it. What do you reckon? Yeah, that's what I think too. So anyway, good question. Look, it's got us thinking. Send your questions in. We do really love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag, hashtag the party room, or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And remember to follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. That's it for The Party Room this week. See you, friend. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.